Now Jesus was standing before Pilate, the Roman governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. Jesus replied, you have said it. But when the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. Don't you hear all these charges they are bringing against you, Pilate demanded? But Jesus made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise. Now it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. This year there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before, before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which one, of you, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate responded, Then what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? They shouted back, Crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded. What crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, Crucify him. Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that the riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. The responsibility is yours. And all the people yelled back, We will take responsibility for his death, we and our children. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, sojourn. Peace be with you. My name is Bobby. I'm one of the pastors here. For the last couple of months, we've been journeying through a series called The Fruit of the Spirit. We've been looking at, uh, well, so far, we've looked at eight different virtues. We'll put the full list here on the screen so you can see it, a recap. Today, we're at the last of these virtues, which is self-control. But I want to start out by uh, telling you something that Jonah said at, at the very beginning of this series, the very first sermon. If you notice this verse, Galatians 5.22, um, this list here be begins by saying, now the fruit of the Spirit is, and that's singular, fruit of the Spirit, not fruits of the Spirit. So it's helpful to look at each of these virtues as attributes, nine different attributes of one fruit. We could call this fruit holiness or Christ-likeness. So the, the Holy Spirit comes inside of a Christian to manifest these nine attributes of one fruit being like Christ, being made like Christ. If uh, you have missed some of these sermons or if maybe one or two of these attributes uh, gives you a little more trouble than the others, you wanna go back and review these sermons at any time. You can always do so on your free Right Now Media account. Here's a screenshot of my own computer. Uh, we've, we've got a channel called Fruit of the Spirit Series 2017, so you can always go back, you can click on any service, and you can read the sermon manuscripts, watch the service, and answer discussion questions. If you have no idea what Right Now Media is, you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, you just go to this website. Uh, we've also got this in your bulletin notes, so if you don't want to write this down, just look on the back of your bulletin notes, and you can get a free account. So here we are, last Sunday of the series, and we're going to talk about self-control. And when I first thought about preaching on self-control, a great enemy of mine came to mind. An enemy that it took me about 40 years to subdue, to get in check, but I have to watch out because at any time this enemy could come back and defeat me if I'm not careful. This enemy, of course, is nacho cheese Doritos. 
Not, not any kind of Dorito, the nacho cheese Doritos. I, I, I thought uh, right now about being real cute and I would, I would maybe take a photo of myself covered in nacho cheese Doritos and I'd put that on the, the screen and you could all see that and we'd laugh. But the problem with that is uh, after the photo was taken, I would be covered in nacho cheese Doritos and I would legit try to eat all of them. I can't stop myself. I keep eating and eating and eating. And finally, it comes to the point where that flavor dust or whatever it is on the Doritos coats my, my tongue so thickly that it literally burns my tongue. And the Doritos taste horrible. Everything else tastes horrible for about 24 hours. Um, and along about the time that I've, I've realized oh, I've burned my tongue again with nacho cheese Dorito dust, uh, I also realized that my stomach is upset. I don't know why I do it. I just keep doing it. They taste so good. It's, it's hard to have self-control with nacho cheese Doritos. Well, Dorito tongue is a, a low consequence of lack of self-control. But we all know that overeating anything can have serious health uh, effects. And some of us don't just struggle with overeating. Maybe it's uh, life-threatening eating disorders like bulimia and anorexia. Maybe it's always having one drink too many. Maybe it's losing your temper or always feeling like you need to get in the last word. Why don't you do your homework? Why don't you stay on your budget? Why don't you quit looking at porn? We tell ourselves that some of our problems aren't that big a deal because at least they don't hurt anyone else. And that's almost always false. But even when it's true, it's dangerous because when you keep giving in to the little temptations, eventually you'll give in to the big ones because giving in is what you do. It's your habit and habits are hard to break. And so time again, we trade the best thing for the easy thing. And these things separate us from each other because we don't want anyone else to know about that thing that has mastery over us. Jesus gives us the two keys to self-control for anyone who is filled with the Holy Spirit of God. So let's dive into this story. It begins about 6 a.m. on Good Friday, the day that Christ was crucified. We are in Jerusalem, which is located in the the southern half of the old nation of Israel. It's it's been conquered by the Roman Empire. Uh, This is a territory now called Judea. And the Roman Empire, Caesar, the the emperor of Rome, would frequently appoint governors over conquered territories that were particularly troublesome. And that includes Judea, because the Jews believed that their God was the one true God and that they were his chosen people. And so there was constant friction between the Jews and the Romans. And Caesar didn't want to mess with them. He had bigger fish to fry. So he appoints Pilate to be the governor of Judea. And he's supposed to keep the peace, uh, just keep the Jews from, from causing too much trouble. But by the time we come to the events of today's story, Caesar already has three strikes against him. We'll put these on the screen. The the first is he made a threat to the Jews and then he backed down, so he lost face. So then probably in response to that and and feeling embarrassed about that, number two, he lost self-control and he slaughtered many of the Jews. Number three, the Jews went behind his back. They appealed to Caesar and Caesar ruled in the Jews' favor. 
If you want to learn more about these historical events, they, they were written down by Roman and Jewish historians. I, I put a footnote in your bulletin so you can go home and there's a website on the footnote you can read all about these three particular events. But suffice it to say, by the time we come to the events of today's story, Caesar has three strikes against him and he's thinking, if I don't straighten up, I'm going to be deposed. In fact, that is what happened a few years after the events of today's story. So Pilate is real nervous. He makes it so easy for Jesus to back out of God's plan. He's the judge, and he basically tells Jesus, I'm in your back pocket. I don't like your accusers. If you just work with me even a little bit, even a little bit, I'll let you off. Although Pilate would seem to have the power, Jesus is in control. Pilate is used to prisoners who are begging for their life, pleading their case, making excuses. But in Matthew 27, verse 12, it says, when the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. Don't you hear all these charges they are bringing against you, Pilate demanded? But Jesus made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise. Jesus never said a mumbling word in the, in the words of the old American spiritual. But we know from the eyewitness John's account in the Gospel of John that Jesus did say something directly to Pilate when Pilate questioned him. He said enough that, that Pilate felt like Jesus was probably just some harmless religious nut. In John 18, verse 36, it says, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Not only does Pilate think Jesus is innocent, Pilate's wife thinks Jesus is innocent. Back to Matthew 27, verse 19. Just then, as Pilate was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him this message. Leave that innocent man alone. I suffered through a terrible nightmare about him last night. So his wife is saying, don't do it. His own conscience is saying, don't do it. And the Jews are saying, if you don't do it, we'll tell Caesar you pardoned a rebel. Pilate doesn't have the self-control to choose the best thing, freeing an innocent man. He wants the easy way to somehow weasel out of this without having to make a decision. And he's got one more trick up his sleeve. Verse 15. Now, it was the governor's custom each year during the Passover celebration to release one prisoner to the crowd, anyone they wanted. This year, there was a notorious prisoner, a man named Barabbas. As the crowds gathered before Pilate's house that morning, he asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? We don't know exactly why Barabbas is in jail. The various gospel accounts say he is a murderer, a robber, an insurrectionist. Whatever he did to land himself in his predicament, here's what we, we can know. Pilate is trying to find a way to set Jesus free. Pilate is thinking, 
Who's the one guy that they would never choose over Jesus? Who's the one guy that they would never want back on the streets with their own children? I know. Barabbas. But then, verse 21, the crowd shouted back, Barabbas! It backfired. And Jesus still won't plead for his life. So Pilate does the easy thing. Verse 24, Pilate saw that he wasn't getting anywhere and that a riot was developing. So he sent for a bowl of water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. Their responsibility is yours. Several hours of torture later and Jesus was dead. In the face of a weak-willed governor, a crowd that has lost all reason, and his own friends who ran away and hid, Jesus alone maintained his composure to the end. So what were Jesus' two keys to self-control? Well, first, put this on the screen. Self-control is strengthened through relationship. Over and over again in the Gospels, we find Jesus communing with his Father, praying with his Father, escaping the crowds and going somewhere quiet where he could be alone with his Father. This was his most important relationship, and it's our most important relationship, spending time with God, praying to God, learning to hear God's voice. We also see throughout the Gospels how intentional Jesus is with his friends, Several hours before the events of today's story, before Jesus was arrested, he'd gone to the Garden of Gethsemane so he could pray to his father over what was coming. And in Matthew 26, verse 37, it says, he took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here, keep watch with me. He knew that they would fail him and he would still die for them. Nevertheless, in his anguish, he wanted his friends with him. Even even then, he set the pattern for our behavior. He gave us the perfect example. Self-discipline through community and relationship is the secret that Alcoholics Anonymous knows. It's the secret that Weight Watchers knows and Soul Cycle and countless recovery groups and support classes. It's hard in the trenches in the moment of temptation. You need a, a friend that you can call. You need a friend who will pray with you. You need a friend who has permission to speak directly into your life and say, stop trading the best thing for the easy thing. And you find friends like that here in this room. Maybe you have friends like that in your community group. Or maybe it's your service group if you're a part of the Connect team or Sojourn Kids or the worship team or the Mercy team or student ministry. Some of you are fortunate enough to have Christian friends where you work or in your neighborhood or even in your biological family. Ironically, it's almost impossible to have self-control by yourself. Self-control is strengthened through relationships. That's number one. Number two, self-control is possible when you see your 
story in God's story, and you realize the outcome. People who lack self-control merely see life as the next choice in front of them. They, they don't comprehend the big picture. They don't think there's any sort of grand narrative. They only think, I want this choice right now. Uh, and maybe why this is, is, is something that, that researchers call the end of history illusion. And this doesn't mean the, the end of global history, but the, the end of your history as a person in development, in the act of becoming. We tend to think that who we are now is who we are. Uh, researchers have, have asked people, uh, how much have you changed in the past 10 years? And most people, when they, when they really think about it, realize I've changed a lot in the past 10 years. I've gone through a lot, maybe some tragedies, some some good things, some bad things. I've changed a lot. I've grown a lot. Even in small ways, in, in 10 years, we can look back and think, yeah, my wardrobe has changed. I wear different kind of clothes. I'm a little bit embarrassed by those pictures of me from 10 years ago. Listen to different music. Used to be a meat and potatoes guy, but now I've, I've ventured out and I'm trying different ethnic foods. We've changed a lot in the last 10 years. But then researchers ask those same people, how much do you think you'll change in the next 10 years? And most people say, I don't think I'll change in the next 10 years. I, this is kind of who I am. I've figured stuff out. I've arrived. And when you think like that, then the next choice is just the next choice because you've already arrived. And even if uh, you know that you eat too many Doritos, well, that's, yeah, kind of who I am. Probably not the best thing, but I mean, it hadn't killed me yet. We think that the story is over for us. We are who we are. But God says the story is ongoing. We are in the act of becoming. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is inside of you cultivating these nine attributes, including self-control, to make you more like Jesus. And this story ends in a happily ever after. Jesus constantly reminded his friends of the story. What was going to happen and why, how their sorrow was going to turn to rejoicing, how they were going to fail, but then how he was going to help them and he was going to send them a comforter, the Holy Spirit. And he reminded himself, Hebrews 12 verse two says, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. He stood there in Pilate's hall refusing to answer because he knew he had to die to atone for our sins. And he reminded himself why he was doing it, to bring us into the glorious, never-ending kingdom of God the Father as his brothers and sisters, raising us from death just as he was going to rise. Self-control comes when the best thing, God's story, God's plan for your life is very real to you. It comes from reading, reflecting, and rejoicing in God's word. Not just God's word about the end, about your resurrection and Christ's return and, and our eternal state in heaven, but even the example that we have throughout scripture of God's faithfulness to his people and how time and again through centuries and centuries, he's faithful to his people even when they are faithless. And we reflect on that and we realize that the same thing has been true in our life. And we look back over those last 10 years and we think of all the times God has come through for us.
And if it wasn't for God, I don't know where I'd be. I don't know how this would have turned out, how this would have turned out. Probably wouldn't even be here. Wouldn't maybe be alive. Wouldn't be a part of God's family. Would have maybe died apart, of, apart from God's family. So let's get practical. Let's, let's say kids in school are making fun of your daughter. They're calling her names. She's miserable. Don't just tell her, don't let them see you cry. You be a fortress. Chin up. Hold your head up high and just walk on by. That's not biblical self-control. That doesn't give her hope. That just puts a bigger chip on her shoulder. You've shown her, be self-conscious. Put up an image of toughness. We could call this good old American tough guyism. Here's a, a slide to contrast the, the different ways that uh, we, we can look at self-control. The first is the undisciplined way, short-term pleasure, long-term regret. And many of us live here. Number two, tough guy way. Life is hard, then you die. Suck it up. Many of us live here. Many of us drift back and forth between those two, but there's a better way, God's way. It says there's a point to all this and happily ever after with a father and a family who loves us. So going back to our example, instead, what if you told your daughter, I love you, your family loves you, your church family loves you. And that's all a picture of how Jesus loves you. And he knew that you were going to have to go through this. Here's the story you're in. Here's why kids are this way. And here's the hope we have when we trust in Christ instead of just trying to tough through it, instead of uh, just trying to put up a brave front or strike back or compromise our integrity to fit in. And then remind her about her friends and Sojourn Kids or student ministry, us too, and how they, when they are faced with temptations in a harsh world, can remind each other of the story they're in. When they can say to each other, remember what we've grown up believing. Remember the songs we've sung. Remember the truth we bonded over on countless Sundays and vacation Bible schools and summer camps and play dates. Remember the story we're in. Our children, just like us, can have self-control because God is in command. He's placed us in his family. He's brought us into his story. So, so here's a big next step for tomorrow, Monday, first day of the work week. We'll put this on the screen. Next step, ask yourself, in what situations are you trading the best thing for the easy thing? And then maybe you should ask yourself, no, really. What is it really? And then go to your friend. Go to someone. Maybe it's your whole community group talks about this this week. Go to someone and, and say, hey, Here's a situation, or here are a couple of situations where I'm trading the best thing for the easy thing, and I want you to pray with me, and I want you to hold me accountable. I want you to journey through this with me. I want you to check up on me every once in a while. Let's do that together this week. The Spirit of God will cultivate self-control within us through relationship. And in our relationship with Christ and each other, 
we remind ourselves every week that this story has a happily ever after. The story leads there, but it began long ago and far away. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread like this one. And after giving thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Then he took a cup of wine like this one. And he said, this is my blood shed for you. Drink this in remembrance of me until our happily ever after when I come back for you. Those first followers of Jesus endured a lifetime of suffering and persecution and temptation. But whenever they got together, one of them said, I brought the bread. And another said, I brought the wine. And together they rehearsed the story again. And the spirit of Jesus was in their midst whispering, you chose the best in just a moment, you'll come forward tearing off a piece of bread, dipping it into wine or juice as your conscience permits. The cups with, with uh, wine will have strings of twine tied around them. If you need gluten-free communion elements, you'll find them in this far corner over here. My left, your right. Those of you in the back half of the room can, instead of coming forward, just turn around and go straight to the back, and there's a communion station right in front of the sound booth directly in the back. If you're not a Christian, I'd ask that you don't come forward to partake of communion because it symbolizes a commitment, a, a, a a reality that you haven't accepted yet. So it wouldn't make sense for you to do so. But I urge you to pray at your seat, to pray this week, to pray with the Christian in your life. The easy thing for you today would be to leave here just like you came. The easy thing for you would be to quell that voice you hear inside your head saying, try Jesus, but don't trade the best thing the easy thing. Let's pray.